That means they're coming up in a month. Streaming services whose audiences have boomed during the pandemic raked in a bunch of nominations. And for Apple TV+, Plus, which I don't have, its most celebrated show is Ted Lasso, about an American football coach recruited to head a soccer team over in England. You know, I always figured that tea was just going to taste like hot brown water. And you know what? I was right. Yeah, it's horrible. No, thank you. To England. It's been called one of the nicest feel-good shows in years. And that has scored this freshman series 20 Emmy nominations. I'm Gustavo Ariano. You're listening to The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Today's Wednesday, August 18th, 2021. The U.S. government declared a water shortage on the Colorado River, limiting water supplies next year for Arizona, Nevada, and Mexico. Texas Governor Greg Abbott tests positive for the coronavirus. And a Gallup poll shows 49% of U.S. adults have tried marijuana, the highest rate ever. Not me. Like what you're listening to? Then make sure to follow The Times on whatever platform you use. Please, please, please don't make us the Puccia Podcasts. Among the Emmy nominees for Ted Lasso is Hannah Waddingham. She's a British actor and singer, and of course, the nun that famously yelled, shame, shame, at Cersei Lannister in Game of Thrones. In Ted Lasso, she plays Rebecca Welton. That character hires a new coach, Ted, played by writer and Saturday Night Live alum, Jason Sudeikis, with less than great intentions. Ted, I lied to you. I hired you because I wanted this team to lose. I wanted you to fail. And I sabotaged you every chance I've had. Today, we continue our collaboration with our sister podcast, The Envelope, and its host, Ivan Villarreal. In this episode, she talks to Hannah Waddingham about her Emmy nomination and how she gets into a character's literal shoes. Hannah, thanks so much for joining me today. You're welcome. Nice to hear your voice. Same. You now have the distinction of having Emmy nominee mentioned alongside your name, First, congratulations. Have you gotten used to the way that sounds? I haven't, and I don't think I ever will. And I think that's just the way it should be. It's a a privileged position to be in when I know so many brilliant actors all over the place who've who've never been nominated. So I I feel the prestige of it. Hmm. Well, the Emmys are just a few weeks away. There will be a limited audience of nominees and their guests for the in-person ceremony. Have you received any instructions for the big day? Like, do you have to get a test the day prior, the morning of? How are you feeling about it? I don't know about any of all that. All I I know is that I'll be going come hell or high water. (laughs) I haven't got involved in any of that, thankfully. Well, yeah, I mean, Ted Lasso is one of the nicest shows on TV right now. But for most of the first season, like you said, your character was not that nice. She spent almost the entirety of the season trying to bring down the football team that she newly owns as a way of getting back at her husband. Um, In season two, your character shows a softer side. She's embracing her love of the sport and her team. She's dating and she's reconnecting with her goddaughter. Did you miss anything about her hard edges, either for the character or in terms of playing her? I wouldn't say I miss her hard edges. I certainly had to find a new ground without her having any attrition with anyone, Mm -hmm. um, as far as anyone has seen at the moment. But 
I felt very softly and dearly about her and held her very precious to my heart from day one, even though she was doing all those things she was doing, because I know I knew why she was doing them. And it was a kind of rite of passage for her to gain catharsis through this person she never realized would come into her life and make everything different and better in the form of Ted. Rebecca is also the rare woman in power in sports. Are there any real life figures you've read up on or even reached out to as you've sort of uh, settled into this role? No, not really, because her main thrust, of course, was very much, like I said previously, it could have been any subject matter. It could have been a golfing academy. It could have been in a school. It could have been anywhere. She was just hell-bent on destroying that which had been created by her ex because she knew that was the only thing he really cared about. Mm. So there wasn't the need for that there. And now I think I'm so deeply embedded in Rebecca and what she stands for, that it hasn't been something I've felt that I need to rediscover or or kind of embellish from season one. I'm I'm happy with where she sits and I take each moment as it comes. Because of course, still with Rebecca, there's not an awful lot of football content anyway. She may be the, the head of that ship, so the buck stops with her. But of course, before that, there's been all the technical talk um, from Ted and from Nate and from Beard and from um, Roy Kent, you know. So, And then all our fabulous boys in the locker room, they provide the proper football yeah. vibe that is so important. I wouldn't want to interfere with all their great work. People have been rooting for her since the beginning. Did that strike you as surprising? No, because I, I actually spoke to Jason very early on, just making sure that she wouldn't just be seen as the kind of Darth Vader of the piece. Um, and he said, look, don't worry about it because that's why we chose you, because you have a natural empathy and humanity about you. And it's the cracks in between where a warmth or a fragility peeks through and kind of subliminally, that's what the audience clamp onto. The fact that you, you see her finish a conversation where she's been the boss or where she's been trying to sabotage something and then someone leaves the room and you see the real her seep through. So it's so cleverly written that I really didn't have to worry about that because the writers had it all in hand in the first place. Well, the niceness of the show has prompted a number of think pieces. Why do you think it's the source of this much analysis? Probably because it feels like a long time, apart from my beloved obsessive fangirling over Shit's Creek, <laughs> I feel like it's a long time since we had anything that showed the power of good, the power of good behavior, the power of treating others as you would wish to be treated, the basic Ted Lasso vibe, as it were. And also, I think the the alchemy of putting together the writers, the caliber of which we have, with the correct people playing the parts, perhaps, that make for something that has just captured people's minds and hearts because it just feels like it all fits. And there's no one of us in this cast that feels more important than anyone else. And I think that comes across and it makes the audience feel comfortable watching. What's it like with you guys offset, like particularly in season two? Um, you're filming in a much different way, obviously. Like how does that niceness translate to you guys all together? It was effortlessly there from day one of our first read through of the pilot and it stayed the same. And, and it does come down, I think, to hierarchy. 
if everybody is on an even playing field and you all dig each other, which we all do. I mean, I've said before, I'd happily be stuck in a lift with any of them. And I'm talking about them, our supporting artists. It's a very, very happy camp. So we don't have to try hard. And thankfully, it was all there because, of course, all the difficulties of COVID, of course, you step onto the set and you think, oh, God, is this going to suck the funny out of it? But of course, it didn't. Because as soon as you start doing scenes and you dig each other and the script is so good, it just happens naturally. Well, prior to Ted Lasso, one of your memorable TV roles was as Septa Unella, the sort of shame nun from Game of Thrones. What were your expectations for what Septa might be able to do for your career at that point? I hadn't thought about it genuinely. I knew that Game of Thrones was this huge, huge magnificently successful juggernaut and I was heavily pregnant when I auditioned for it, literally like eight months pregnant. And I had gone in to, as actors do, to say hello to the producers and the casting directors for next time. I was literally going in to tip them the wink and say, hi there, um, I'm just off having a baby, but don't forget me. <laughs> and uh, and then the casting director, Nina Gold, came racing out after me after my first meeting with them and just said, look, is this something that you'd think about? Because your child will only be like nine weeks when we start shooting. And in that moment, I was just like, uh, yes. And my brain was ticking away thinking, oh my God, one, how am I going to do this? And two, oh my God, it's Game of Thrones. <laughs> <laughs> And I imagine there were plenty of photos taken of your kid while on set. Like, that will be a memory that will always be there, right? Oh, I've got the best behind-the-scenes photos of, you know, me and my daughter on the Iron Throne and myself and Lena goofing around and being silly and stuff. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, to be part of that in, in the history of, of TV is, is, God, just epic. Did you worry you'd be typecast as this terrifying woman? Or have you found that you enjoy playing with those labels or perceptions? I love it. I actually go after it. The thing that I'm just about to start shooting now, I couldn't look more grim and disgusting again. And I'm an actress and I'm a singer. And I don't want you to recognize me from one thing to the next. That's what it's all about for me. It's about being a chameleon. It's about hanging your shoes up at the door in the trailer and coming out as someone else. And the same with singing. You know, if people say to me, are you are you classical? Are you jazz? Are you whatever? I always say, well, I'm whatever the song requires. And that's how I like to work. And it keeps me interested. We'll be back after this break. Ted Lasso is a comedy, and while Rebecca is not trying to be funny, what she does is funny to the audience. Have you enjoyed leaning into your comedic side again? I mean, you worked with Mike Nichols in the original London production of Spamalot. Like, how did that schooling prep you for performing comedy? I feel like it's always been there, and it was just a bit of a meeting of minds when I met Mike. I also did uh, Benidorm, which was uh, a huge comedy series here in England, our flagship comedy series. So getting getting back into it now, but it's in a very different way. Those Both Spamalot and Benidorm were far broader 
And Mm -hmm. I think that what I had to get rid of on Ted Lasso was being self-conscious that everyone else was kind of out and out funny. As you correctly say, the humour of Rebecca Mm -hmm. is that she's almost like the every girl. The audience are experiencing things with her. Like if you take episodes one and two, particularly of season two, I've loved the fact that people have contacted me going, oh God, it was so cringy when you've got had this date or you've done this or you've done that. And that's the humour in her being a bit embarrassing. And the biscuits, of course. Yeah, the biscuits, exactly. Like we've just seen where where Sassy's talking about what Ted's like in bed and suddenly Rebecca's like, oh, bleh. <laughs> What has it been like to see the reaction to the show, particularly when it's hard to really know how exactly or how many people are are watching since it's Apple and they don't release viewership data? Like, when did it feel like it was a thing? Well, it felt pretty quickly like it was from all the social media response. So we knew that we certainly knew that going into season two and wanting to do the best we could for where we'd already got to. But the thing that really freaked a few of us out was when we touched down in America a couple of weeks ago and it was crazy. Like Suddenly loads of people coming up to you and, and if we were travelling in a pack like we do like to, it was like having, you know, four or five cartoon characters all getting out of a van together <laughs> and people just going, wait, what? <laughs> So it's been it's been really lovely. And like I say about the fans, they've been there from like the end of the pilot. I want to go back to your childhood for a bit. You grew up in a family of performers. Your mom and your maternal grandparents were all opera singers. What was that like? Like what memories stand out from being in their orbit? Um, well, I suppose one thing is, I grew up thinking, well, isn't everyone's mum an opera singer? You know, you'd have no frame of reference, do you? So I would walk around the corridors of the London Coliseum and and when my mum came, went on tour to New York, I'd be wandering around the Metropolitan Opera House in New York. And if you don't know any different, I suppose it, to a point, it's like my daughter now, she doesn't know any different than coming to the places I go to, being on set, like I said about her sitting on the Iron Throne with me, if they don't know any different. But I try and keep her very much with her feet on the ground, like my parents did, mm. knowing the worth of, of money and hard work. Um, but my maternal grandparents were opera singers in the Isle of Man. So I didn't have as much to do with them. But the funny thing is, whenever I would sing when I was younger, my mum was startled by how much I sounded like her mother naturally. And now I have that with my daughter. She's seven years old. And when she decides to do a big old note, it's alarming how beautifully placed and like a a young opera singer it is already. It even freaks me out. I'm sure I couldn't do that at seven. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but my parents always kept my feet on the ground. So it, it's, uh, it was a, a really lovely upbringing and, and a real privilege. But um, I hope it didn't change me too much and make me precocious. That's what I try and keep a, keep a uh, little eye on with my own daughter now. Hmm. Well, you do sing and act, but was there a time when you thought you might follow their same path and be strictly an opera singer? Um, no, I would say that's happened more recently. Um, back in the day when I was um, leading lady in the West End, constantly just belting, it didn't cross my mind because that's what I was there for. 
Um, but now I feel like as I'm getting older, I did a I did a show at the London Coliseum where my mum had been for 27 years, which was a rather lovely full circle. Last year, before we all locked down, um, in February, I was playing Queen Elizabeth II in all her full Gloriana regalia, singing high operatic trilling soprano. And I have to say, in that moment, I did think, ooh, this feels like my most natural setting and maybe I should have been doing this all the time. But um, I like the fact that I can swap and change. It's it's definitely the best of both worlds. Well, as we've discussed, I mean, you've appeared in Spam a lot, the 2010 revival of Into the Woods, Wizard of Oz. Describe what the musical theater scene in West London is like. Like, how do you navigate that world? It's like, I think, a world a lot of us dream of or wonder what it is like you know, being in that world, how how do you look back on it or even look at it now? Um, I look back on it with great affection and love, but I look back on it as being serious, serious, at the coalface, hard work. Mm. And I'm very proud of all that work I did. And the companies, thankfully, the the my fellow actors and the singers and the all the ensembles, the brilliant dancers that I worked with over a 20-year period, they are, and they were then and still are, just outstanding performers. And there is a discipline and a muscularity in theatre, certainly the long-running shows, mm -hmm. that you just cannot beat. There's a reason why uh, the West End and Broadway are so revered, and it's because they just have absolute workers. And the standard, you have to keep up with it yourself. And so I look back at that time as being a real privilege, but really damn hard work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> has there been anyone in your life who has been a Ted Lasso-like figure who, you know, has really encouraged you to see a dream through? Yes, undoubtedly Sir Trevor Nunn. Hmm. He and I met when I came back from Spamalot on Broadway in 2008, 2009. I went in for a meeting with him for a little night music and I think it was a meeting of minds the minute we met in terms of him thinking, well, okay, I think I was about 33 at the time. We weren't going to go as young as you for the role of Desiree because nobody had ever played it that young. She'd always been kind of in her mid-50s, early 60s. And he aged down the production so that I could be that central character. And then they they, wow. they had the, the women who would have been my age at the time, they aged them down to kind of early 20s. And we then did Kiss Me Kate together as well. And I feel like he was the one that absolutely encouraged me to nurture the straight acting side and possibly move into more screen work and gave me the confidence to do that because his way of directing is so filmic in the first place. Mm -hmm. And I felt like he was an absolute sucker for the details. And if I had perhaps been in things that were more showy, he made me look under the bonnet more and go for the detail of it to to move people. Has it made you think about how you can be that person for someone else? Well, I hope that I've had that effect on others. Mm -hmm. um, I had a really lovely moment the other night. I was at the Anything Goes press night here at the Barbican and a set designer came up to me and said hello and I said oh hello nice to meet you and he said oh we have actually met before because um, 
I'm one of the patrons of uh, Paul McCartney's drama school in Liverpool. And I went and gave their graduation speech. And he said, you won't remember me. I was sitting in the in the audience when you were talking to the students and you put your back to all the parents and said, excuse me, I'm just going to speak to the to the students for a second. And you said, make sure if you get a script or you get an interview come in, make sure you know what you're talking about. Turn the telly off and really bother because if you don't, somebody else will bother and they'll get it instead. And he said, that stayed with me always. And I just wanted to thank you for that. And it absolutely meant the world that he'd come over and found me and said, I remember you saying that and that's how I work. Once when you get, you know, a new role is the first thing to do, start researching or just really delve into the script? I would say delve into the script and I have to feel the rhythm of the character, feel whether it's a kind of a languishing voice or staccato. I have to feel whether they would be strident or not. Uh, I have to feel the kind of the pitch of their voice. I have to see it all in my head like it's fully done on screen and then I can work back from that. And a massive mm. thing for me as well is shoes. The really? shoes of the character is everything for me. How soon did you figure out... Rebecca's shoes. I didn't have to think. I didn't have to split second. I knew who she was with her shoes always. She would either be in dead flat pumps on her few days off, or she would be in absolutely sky high, don't F with me heels to keep people away from her. <laughs> mm -hmm. Never Uggs. No, God, no. Never flip flops. And certainly never an apologetic kitten heel. Never. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean this question sincerely because I think people who've watched this show have had moments of introspection on this. In the range of optimism, with Ted being the most optimistic and Rebecca maybe being the least or most cynical, where do you fall and and how has the show made you reevaluate your outlook on things? I actually am a, an optimistic person. I'm very much a glass half full. And if it isn't half full, work until it is half full. So I would definitely put myself up there. And I don't mean that as being self-congratulatory. I just know that that's how I am. I'm not, I'm not a negative person. I don't think it serves you or anyone else. And I try to be the best version of myself for my little girl to, to give her a, a good start in life as well. I have no time for negativity or negative people or, you know, people giving any kind of downer to a situation. I just think, come on, we could be in an awfully much worse situation than we are. Well, before I let you go, you know, we've all spent a lot of time watching things, reading things. Um, what what content, what um, projects have you had the time to take in during this time? I'm pals with uh, Noma Dumaswemi and I watched her in The Undoing and mm. I just thought the whole thing was absolutely meticulously executed and just beautifully played by all of them universally. It was really, it was so exhilarating and immediately made me want to do something similar. Just absolutely brilliant. Hugh Grant is just, God, you'd like to sit there with a notebook and a pencil and take down what he was doing in it, you know, just, just brilliant. Thank you so much for speaking with me. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much, Yvonne. Take care.
And that's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Tomorrow, our monthly Masters of Disasters series. The fire this time, the largest in California history. Our show is produced by Shannon Lynn, Denise Guerra, Melissa Kaplan, and Marina Peña. Our engineer is Mario Diaz. Our editors are Shawnee Hilton and Lauren Rabb. Our intern is Ashley Brown, and our theme music is by Andrew Eben. I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back tomorrow with all the news in this Madrid. Gracias. <laughs>